You're listening to Marcus Sahaba Online Radio Podcast. Structured for you, the uh, astute listenership of Marcus Sahaba, the voice of the Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah. And uh, this evening, we're joined by our favorite uh, senior attorney, Ashraf Isub. Let me welcome you and uh, Ashraf with a hearty Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And tell me how you're doing, uh, Ashraf, uh, this fine, beautiful evening. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Very well, thank you, Shafat. Alhamdulillah, all is well. Alhamdulillah, you know, I know you're very busy indeed. Uh, staff is gone, but you're still on the job, uh, Ashraf. How does it feel with the staff not being around? And uh, perhaps, you know, you're doing uh, most of it yourself, Ashraf. Yeah, Shafat, it's it's not an easy thing. Hey, I mean, um, you know, I my my core function is uh, preparation of um, matters for the for for high court and argument. You know, I argue my own matters. So the background always takes uh, is taken care by uh, other people, such as you know, loading your documents on case online, getting a court number, liaising with the registrar about who's the judge and, you know, but this week, oh, it was quite a challenge because we closed last week, but I had committed myself to two matters that um, required some urgent relief. And so really I was doing everything from typing to faxing to emailing (laughs) to scanning and then liaising with the judges, registrar. No, it was... uh, really a big learning curve for me uh, and I'm really appreciative of the assistance that we have you know with our staff around but alhamdulillah it, uh, it's uh, it's all okay yeah I know uh, you know our generation alhamdulillah we are quite competent and uh, we get things done you know Ashraf uh, many things are going aside uh, we noticed that uh, some articles that was uh, I was looking around and uh, there was this uh, that said that Durban uh, prosecutor accused of getting foreigners off the hook and uh, you know before i get to that uh, i mean uh, you, if you're looking at you you're, you're working frantically you've got uh, approximately four days before christmas what happens then ashraf so urgent court is always open kind of uh, never closes there is a period that it's called da's non so it's like from 15 december until 28 january all your other matters, the DA's non means pleadings are suspended. So even if you file a pleading, it's not recorded, it's not reacted upon. It's as if the courts are closed. And um, the big difference is that in any province, there are urgent judges always on standby uh, because anything can happen, uh, Shafat. You know, at this part of the year, oftentimes, there's huge disputes with family members involving children, the right to travel, uh, where the child will spend Christmas. You know, people become emotionally invested in the season. And so the courts are always accessible and should always be accessible. You know, you should not be deprived of justice. So it's an interesting thing that, that we are observing. But uh, just for you know general information, the courts are always there to be accessed. I mean, you could have, for example, a prisoner who, who's, uh, you know, had to be released and he wasn't. I mean, his rights as a prisoner uh, can only be accessed uh, through the high court. 
And so there's various kinds of relief. You can go uh, for an urgent interdict, which is to stop something. You can go for a mandamus or a court order ordering something. You could go for interim relief. Uh, you could final relief is not often advisable in the in the urgent court. But basically, under urgency, you'll have to prove that you won't have substantial redress in due course. Uh, possibly that your constitutional rights have been threatened or interfered with. And um, uh, basically, in, in terms of an interdict, you have to show that you have a prima facie right. Uh, there's no alternative relief and the balance of convenience favors you. So these are all the technical things that you'll come across in an urgent uh, case. Um, you could, for example, now that, you you know, there's uh, ships docking in, in, in Durban and, uh, you know, you could, it, it could, it could, you know, there was a, a rumor of a Russian ship coming to Simonstown last week. So, you know, you could bring an application to, uh, to interdict the ship from entering the water or leaving the water. So, very, very interesting matters that a judge encounters in the high court, in the urgent high court. And each division probably has two. I know here in Johannesburg, we have two. Pretoria, you have two. Also, you have to be very careful about where you bring the action, the urgent. Like in this case, if there's litigation against the minister, it's advisable to bring it in Cape Town or Pretoria because Cape Town is one of the seats of government and Pretoria is the head office. So if you bring it in Johannesburg, you probably fail on jurisdiction. Again, you know, it's all part of the learning curve, but very, very interesting, Alhamdulillah. I tell you, you know, that's the beauty of talking to you, you know, our senior attorney, Ashrafi. So if you really bring in the nitty gritty and uh, with your experience, we get to know more. And, uh, you know, uh, looking at uh, this article that I was reading, uh, which said uh, that a Durban prosecutor accused of getting foreigners off the hook. I mean, it seems like the prosecutors and the law and, the, you know, and then the mafia cartels and all. Uh, foreigners are always, uh, you know, in the news headlines, uh, Ashraf. Yeah, I read that uh, article. Um, you know, corruption is not new, Shafat. Uh, today, a, a JMPD, that's Johannesburg Metropolitan Police Department, uh, was stopped. He had 14,000 rands in cash and 300 licenses. Now, you know, ask yourself, what would the police officer be doing with that kind of thing? And he was charged with corruption. Now, the prosecutor in Durban, what I understand him to have done, in the event that there were serious crimes, he never over, he overlooked those serious crimes and instead went for an administrative charge of being an illegal foreigner where they paid an admission of guilt, normally we call it AOG, of between 1,500 and 3,000. So the main claim, let's say it was rape or drugs or whatever, the main claim was hidden from the seniors. So I'm sure that this prosecutor wasn't doing it out of generosity. Um, he, he, he was doing it for a, for a particular purpose. 
But there you have, you know, what you call defeating the ends of justice, corruption, uh, fraud and fraud, forgery and uttering, where, you know, you don't call it what it is. I think he's going to face severe consequences. Also, you know, one needs to be aware, Shafa, at this time of the year, um, you know, there's an increase in domestic violence. And if you get locked up for that, you won't get bail in a hurry. There's one extra long, uh, there's an extra holiday thrown in. So you'll sit for a long time before you can access the magistrate's court for bail. The magistrate's court also, uh, you can access them, the criminal courts I'm talking about. Those continue uh, in the in the usual way. Before we get to our topic proper, uh, you know, just like to make a comparison of uh, how blessed you are in the House of Islam, and you know, you, the, you you have a lot of spirituality in you, which I truly appreciate with our listeners. And you know, we look at uh, how uh, uh, the Christian world or the Western world how they celebrate their holy days in such unholy manners. You know, uh, by getting in um, uh, indulging in alcohol and this merry making and festiv- uh, festivities, and you'll notice that. Uh, 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 all these violences that are optimum and so forth. But uh, compared to the House of Islam, when you get our holy days, you know, uh, there's a vast uh, contrast. Perhaps, you know, we can, uh, uh, or you can add on this by saying how fortunate we are that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us uh, the proper way of embracing and celebrating uh, holy days and so forth. Uh, Ashraf, your thoughts? No, absolutely, Shafat, it's a great blessing uh, to be given the deen. But perhaps I can start by uh, reflecting on what Prince Charles said in the week, uh, sorry, King Charles. And he was at the Jalsa, I think, in, in England, and he was saying to them, if only all of us uh, could interpret the living Quran in our daily lives, like on a practical level, it'll make a huge difference. So. The topic that you've just raised is uh, the contrast between how holidays or holy days are celebrated. Now, let's be clear. This Christmas is not universal. The Greek Orthodox Church celebrates Christmas on another day. So they don't believe that the 25th of December was the official date. Of course, from our perspective, we know the story of uh, the Immaculate Conception, and we also know that Sayyidina Isa's gestation was not nine months, it was a much shorter period. We also know of the miracles that he was imbued with, even when he had to defend his mother, and she had to be silenced. Imagine the, the trial she went through, she had to be silenced when she appeared with the baby and all these accusations were around her and she kept quiet for three days because that was the command and she pointed to the baby and said Isa then spoke again a miracle on its own so on the one hand we all know that we accept the very special position of Sayyidina Isa as a Nabi of, of, of Allah and, and all his attributes that was given, as the Quran says, which is by the permission of Allah. 
But Sayyidina Isa was himself a remarkable uh, prophet, amongst prophets, one of the greatest. And, you know, we mustn't lose sight of this fact, Shabbat. He was a Jew. He wasn't, he wasn't the first Christian. He, you know, Christianity came much later. And with Christianity came the alteration of the original Torah, which is the original text. And then there were versions of the, of the Bible or the Injil, which obviously the original is not with us anymore. But the, the creation of the Bible as we know it, or the Old Testament, before all these New Testaments, it wasn't written during the existence of, of Sayyidina Isa. It, it came many years later. Um, that's why you get the gospel according to John, according to Peter, according to Paul. The, 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 it's according to somebody. It's not the original text. So your topic was, are we not fortunate? Indeed we are. We have a book that is completely unaltered, not even to a dot. It is in the original text. It is accessible for everyone in every language. It is a book of instruction. It is a book of wisdom. It is a book of guidance. It is, it is there for people that want guidance. That is the opening chapter. Zalik al-Kitab, la Bafi. For those that people, this is the book for those that want. So it's amazing when you see how different our existence is. But... I think time and again we've emphasized, and maybe one needs to repeat this. Islam is one system, Kufr is one system, and they do not meet. So we have a unique deen with a unique book, with a unique Nabi, and a unique relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Glimpses of which we now see in the James Webb telescope. I don't know if you're actually following it. But all you're seeing is 4% of the universe. Can you imagine that? That in this huge, huge universe, we're seeing 4% with our eye. But now the technology allows us to see further into space. And the more you go, the more fascinating it becomes and the more mind-boggling it becomes. But we know with certainty that Allah is unique and there is none like him. Shafa. You know, I like what you said there because, uh, you know, we interrogate this a little more where you see that, uh, you know, Christianity has been compromised to such an extent that uh, those that were uh, followers of Christianity, you know, suddenly um, becoming atheists or uh, being captured by people like Dan Brown and uh, many others who, uh, you know, actually have taken religion out of the equation and, uh, you know, putting through circularism and so forth, and you know what's going through. So uh, you'll notice uh, that the uh, church population has dwindled in uh, in, 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 in Europe. Uh, and in uh, London alone or, or in Britain alone, so many churches had to be sold off because uh, the, there were no more congregants coming through. And most of the churches have been bought out by Muslims and turned into uh, masjids. And this onslaught against uh, religion and uh, the ushering in of this new world uh, so-called disorder, you know, uh, what they're doing to our children, confusing the minds, uh, so forth, etc., etc. But one thing that you can't tamper with and you can't interfere with 
is uh, the pure and the pristine deen of Islam. It has withstood, uh, withstood many onslaughts until today. Haq prevails and Batil by very uh, nature will uh, perish, uh, Ashraf. You're right, Shafat. Um, the statistics or the suggestion is that Islam is the fastest growing deen in the world. Um, the loss of uh, people not going to church can only be counterproductive for the people that call themselves Christians or, you know, or Jews or whatever else they call themselves. But overall, we must appreciate, Shafat, that the three great deans all believed in one creator, you see. And the movement away, uh, the, the, the loss of membership in the church doesn't automatically translate into a uh, conversion to Islam. Uh, a lot of them have become atheists. You know, that has now become the second biggest religion in, in, in Europe. So at the end of the day, it is of concern that people have moved away from the church. I mean, in our country, there was a tradition that shops would not trade on a Sunday and they would close half day on the uh, uh, Saturday, which was the Jewish Sabbath. So it was now, you know, it basically had an element that that kept the people going to church. It, it had, they had a link with the creator in their own way. And that has now been replaced and lost, and I don't think it'll ever be recovered. I must tell you quite confidently that I heard, you know, a, a, a little thing, a little thing that is quite heartwarming. Uh, you know, I, I do know some people from the other religious groups, and they were saying they struggled to keep their numbers, and they were in envy of the Muslims, who, in the holy month of Ramadan went to a mosque in their droves every Friday, have a mass gathering without any kind of formal organization. And, and they guarded. Um, you spoke earlier on of the holy days, you know, the extra fast that we keep on the, say, the 10th of Muharram or 15th Shaban or whatever, whatever the occasion or the Monday and the Thursday, which is the Sunnah. So, you know, it's amazing how subtle, subtle the deen is, but how everything is in place, you know, without having to struggle. Quite, quite amazing um, to see that our experience is completely different from uh, the experiences of people around us. And in a way, it is sad to see that they are struggling for their sanity, you know, that they, they can't make much sense of their existence and our deen really provides so much provides the answers for everything where there's loss we immediately say from Allah do we come and unto him is our return if something happens we say Alhamdulillah if uh, we seek refuge we say Auzubillah you know you know it's it's an amazing thing it's like almost so natural so uh, in sync, you know, so in such harmony that you have to sit back and marvel that Allah has chosen for us our deen and we have to be eternally grateful. We have to, we have to not forget while we're asking 
we also have to be grateful. We have to say thanks to Allah. Shafa. You know, you said that, uh, you know, very deep indeed, uh, because, uh, you know, the Quran, when you look at it, it's a book of life for life. And no thinking person should be without it. And as, uh, you know, you said, it is uh, such an easy deen that everything is in place. And, you know, recalling what George Bernard Shaw, he's the one that wrote The Pygmalion, and I think he won the uh, Nobel Prize for Literature in uh, 1935. You know, after he studied uh, Nabi Muhammad Wasallam, he said, I studied the wonderful man, Wasallam. far from being an antichrist, he should be called the savior of mankind. He says, Europe, nay, the world needs him to bring about a change and to keep uh, people on the straight and narrow. I mean, here's George Bernard Shaw studying Nabi Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And uh, another thing that he said, and uh, many said he was a closet Muslim, and this is what, uh, what he said, uh, I'm an atheist, but I thank God for that. Your, your uh, comments, are, <laughs> that's George Bernard Shaw again. Uh, uh, Ashraf, your comments? No, it's interesting when you see um, other books, uh, you know, where, where they say, uh, of the hundred of, of the, the the greatest men in on in history, then the Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam leads uh, leads the rest. Michael H. Um, yes. Yeah. So so look, Shavad, while we celebrate that, the the thing is the poison towards Islam or Islamophobia or Islam or whatever you want to call it doesn't dissipate. You saw this in a bit of the World Cup. You know the the criticisms leveled against uh, Qatar and uh, and the other hand the um, the great outpouring of generosity and uh, Muslim hospitality that wasn't widely reported you know if there was a sad if there was a bad story yeah they would latch onto it but you know like you, uh, earlier on you said um, Allah plans Mankind plans and Allah is the best of planners. So it's all part of Allah's plan and we just fit into it. Now, Alhamdulillah. And, you know, especially in uh, we living in a sea of uh, Christianity, uh, looking at our context in this country and, uh, you know, Ashraf, um, a word in season, you know, you don't have to be very hard or very harsh. Perhaps, uh, you know, giving dawah. How would you go about it? I mean, I would uh, really would love to give out the last sermon and perhaps attacked on uh, alcohol and uh, Islam's uh, viewpoint on alcohol and, uh, you know, show people uh, what it causes, how it destroys the uh, nations, families, uh, generations and so forth. Uh, how would you approach, uh, you know, uh, doing your bit of dawah during this, uh, this uh, so-called festive times? So I think, uh, Shafat, um, you know, one must be seen to be a Muslim. And one's behavior is very important. What I think is Dawa is an ongoing activity. It's throughout the year. It's not particularly this part of the year. But this part of the year, we all encounter people uh, from different walks of life. You, Durban might get a lot of visitors. People are hanging out um, uh, at, at the sea. But I believe, for me personally, it's in your khidmah. You must be able to help people. Uh, maybe volunteer your services. Um, you know, be visible at the police stations to help the, the, the police officers. See if you can do some ambulance duty. 
see if you can make some sandwiches and hand it out to the poor and needy. That, I believe, is far more attractive at being Muslim rather than saying, here's a pamphlet, read it. Of course, that is not to be excluded. But I believe that your greatest advert for Islam is action. And action comes from service of humanity, all of humanity. Uh, you know, you might just buy somebody a meal. You know, you might see somebody struggling across the road with packets to, you know, whatever you can do, as long as you do it with the intention that I want to please my Lord more than I want to please people. And if in that interchange, you strike up a conversation, it's very, it's very easy to actually speak about Islam, especially to the Christians, because they don't know the high esteem we have for Nabi Isa, uh, how we love him, uh, how we would not compromise uh, if he's insulted, uh, how dear his uh, mother is to us, that she's named in the, and there's a whole surah after her. So I, I think when one engages with people in meaningful conversations, those are the things that one can say and then get the person uh, to understand our side of our understanding of Christianity. Because there's a lot, there's a lot that we can, uh, we can exchange with them. And I would dare say, it would be very hard for somebody who is honest uh, to ignore these facts about Islam. And if, if anything, it might just change their attitude and warm the heart. Yeah, you, you remind me of uh, the acronym Islam, I shall love all mankind. And, uh, you know, you talk uh, about uh, Maryam alayhi salam, Surah 19, uh, dedicated to her in the Noble Quran. Isa alayhi salam mentioned uh, more times than Nabi Muhammad sallallahu in the noble, uh, noble Quran. And you bring up these issues uh, with the Christians. It's actually a word in season. And then, you know, you talk about uh, volunteering. Uh, in, in, in America, I believe, uh, the, the Jewish youth, they all get into these uh, fire departments. They get into the electricity department, the police department, the ambulance. They, they Every year they do this uh, during this uh, uh, so-called Christmas time or festive time. They in all these top positions, perhaps uh, getting some inside information. <laughs> I don't know, but Ashraf, it's, it's a very good idea. And why aren't we motivating our youth to do this? Well, I don't know. I think part of it is that we need to just restructure our society and make sure that we have our priorities right. Because, um, again, if you're not used to service in the year, you're not going to do it for a few weeks at the end of the year, especially when everyone is on holiday and, you know, just hanging out and, and stuff like that. Anyway, there's not much I can do to say how the youth will get involved, <laughs> but perhaps uh, the community organizations uh, should reach out and, and do maybe a blood drive, you know, blood donations or, uh, you know, I, well, whatever it takes, you know, I, I, I don't have any prescription. But whatever it takes to be helpful and seen and be seen. You know, absolutely uh, seen and be seen. Uh, I mean, I, we, uh, when we grow up, 
uh, mashallah, we still had a, you know, your mosque and so forth. So we never compromised uh, compromised on our salah. But uh, we had a youth club, and predominantly Muslims. Uh, we did, uh, did have our uh, non-Muslim neighbors joining us too. And you know what? Uh, the beauty of that club was. I remember when it was salah time, we stopped for salah, and we, you know, uh, we, we we did what we had to do. And uh, our non-Muslim friends and our neighbors really appreciated us for that. And uh, subsequently, you know, they respected us and they got to know uh, what was Islam uh, all about. And I, I also recall maybe out of a group of about two, three hundred, uh, three or four did accept Islam, uh, Ashraf. I don't know if you had that experience. Well, you know, we also grew up in uh, townships, you know, because of apartheid. Um, and while we didn't have direct conversions, we, we didn't have animosity because uh, our non-Muslim friends were deeply, deeply respectful of us as we were towards them. Now, at the same time, uh, I, I think it is important to point out that, uh, you know, we, we grew up in, in harmony and, and it does weigh, you know, weigh on your neighbours. Look at the LRE uh, debacle in Port Chepstone. The, the Azan was defended by non-Muslims. You know, I mean, that tells you a lot that they have no link to it. But they found it beautiful and serene in the morning and it started their day well. And they defended it and, and they went against uh, the single individual. So there it, it comes as a result of the harmony between the communities. That is not to say it'll always be like that, Shafat. You know, in Leicester now, about two, three months ago, there were riots between the Muslim uh, youth and uh, uh, some of the um, uh, Hindu youth there. And it could easily, it could easily be exploited and, and brought here. But, uh, you know, I know parts of Durban has huge populations that all mixed together and they'll all live in harmony and, you know, but it's all the, the, the cooperation between people. You know, at the end of the day, Shafat, it's very simple to be human, to be kind, compassionate and helpful. And I think that's a very important lesson that we all have to take. Yeah, you talk about uh, the Ilari case. Uh, actually, it's in my hometown of uh, Sapingo Beach. Uh, living a few do doors away from here, a few streets up, uh, directly uh, opposite the uh, Darul Ulum. Yes, uh, uh, many Hindus defended, uh, you know, uh, the, the call to prayer, and many said, you know, it, uh, it was also a source of reference for them to get up for work. And, you know, they, they found that, uh, that it also uh, forced them to, uh, didn't force, but motivated them to go and pray. So uh, brilliant points indeed uh, coming through with Ashraf uh, this evening. Going into our topic uh, proper this evening, uh, Ashraf, immigration policy set to be uh, reviewed. And uh, let's go through it, Ashraf. So you saw at the ANC elective conference, um, one of the agenda items was the review of uh, immigration, or let's call it immigration reform. Now, this is not something new, Shabbat. It actually goes back to the white paper uh, which was released in July 2017. And that set out the framework for the future immigration in South Africa. Just for the sake of understanding, prior to a white paper, there's a green paper. And the green paper is basically part of the process of lawmaking in South Africa. 
you get uh, the green, you get the white, then it becomes a bill, uh, and then it's it's debated. But there's four principal areas that I think one can expect uh, policy changes. One would be the changes towards migrants from Africa, especially from the SADC region. The second would be the permanent residency and citizenship. The third, very importantly, is the South African asylum system. And the fourth would be the other international migrants. Now, you know, some say that South Africa has got a national development plan goal, right, by 2030. And um, that white paper acknowledges that Migration can help South Africa reach those goals. Um, but they also examine the risks to the security, trafficking and corruption. Trafficking, Shafat, very frightening phenomena here. 300 kids a month are trafficked locally. That's in excess of 3,600 per annum. You have to ask what happens to all these children. So basically, they're talking about um, the security of the republic, you know. Now, one must understand there is going to be criticism of the, um, of the provisions of, of the um, white paper. And there are certain conditions or, or certain things that um, that stand out. One of them is that the asylum system will change. They have proposed camps on the borders where the asylum seekers will basically be housed. They will not be allowed into the community, live, work and study on an asylum seekers permit as, as is done at present. And the other one is, is language, you know, they, they talk about illegal migrant rather than undocumented person. So it kind of criminalizes uh, the migrants, you know. So, so, so some civil societies are, are basically, you know, holding that up and saying, don't do that. Now, you know, let's talk about the changes towards migrants from Africa, basically. So it takes a pan-African stance, this, uh, this whole thing, and it seeks to move away from colonial legacies. Uh, for example, the paper references the AU agenda of 2063, which basically calls for an abolishment of visa requirements for all African countries. A good example is the European Union, right? Where you just need one passport through the uh, European Union. And then, of course, we then had Brexit, and now you need visas and a passport for uh, UK if you're from Europe. So that's one of the things that the white paper aims for visa, visa free travel for all African citizens. That means from north to south, you can travel without a visa. Uh, you can imagine how the demographics will change um, and, and, and what, you know, what could be interesting from a security point of view. But they put certain things into place, like the trusted travelers, um, you know, where you can get multiple entry visas. On, although today I read that our e-visa system is a complete 
uh, an utter waste. It, it's just not working. So they're looking at a fully automated visa application online. Uh, and I think they're going to be talking along the lines of um, what's happening now in Saudi, that if you have prior clearance um, of a visa regime from Europe or UK or, um, or the US or Canada, Australia, then you will get a visa on landing in, uh, in uh, Jeddah. Quite interesting. So they're basically saying, if you're welcome there, then you're okay, you're not a threat, and you could be welcome uh, in the Hejaz as well. Now, a specific reference to the SADC region, it aims towards, um, you know, trying to get goods and people through on various non-binding protocols. You see there's a huge amount of money being spent and the Zimbabwean border with South Africa where it's envisaged that cars and buses and things will be going through at a, a rapid rate. Uh, but, you know, you, you know it, it's okay on paper. Uh, it, you know, I don't know how practical it will be because look, thus far we've had 88% of deportations to Mozambique, Zimbabwe and Lesotho, and you know we got the ZDP with the Zimbabweans, which runs out in six months. If they haven't been able to regularize themselves, well, then they're not going to be able to stay here. And I believe that they will be, um, you know, they will be dealt with quite severely. There are other dispensations in place in the meantime for Lesotho and Angolan nationals. Um, but they, they're also trying to find a new visa option in the SEDEC countries. Um, it could be special work visas, a trader visa, a small medium enterprise visa. And now, you know, they're also talking about the remote work visa for people that want to sit on the beach and still do their work from anywhere in South, uh, from anywhere in South Africa, but you can still uh, do your work. So while, you know, this all might be good on white paper, I think there are some concerns, okay. Um, there are huge delays dealing with the ZEPs and there's administrative blocks. So that, you know, the horses out of the gate is already a problem because of the existing um, backlogs. The minister revealed the other day that by June, July next year, all 53,000 applications will have been cleared. Now, that's a huge amount, Shafat. In six months, 53,000 applications how many per day and how many adjudicators are there? I mean, these are the, the, the devil there, as they say, is in the detail. So we could, we could say that, you know, we don't think that uh, these problems will disappear. As far as the asylum seekers, there was a study that says it'll take 63 years at this rate before their permits are uh, finalized. Here's what comes now in the permanent residency and citizenship part of the immigration reform. They want to change the way in which permanent residency and citizenship is granted. So they want to basically de-link temporary residence and refugee status leading to permanent residence. Other words, they're saying permanent residence is a throughput. It's very easy just to get from one step to the other. 
What they want to replace it is with a long-term residence instead of permanent residence. And that will only be accessible to you know, highly skilled migrants uh, and this not necessarily lead to citizenship. Now, the Citizenship Advisory Panel is also talking to the minister because normally the throughput is uh, temporary residence, permanent residence, then citizenship. Now the minister is saying, hang on, you can't just have this pipeline, you know, to citizenship. We're going to relook at this, especially where there are like 500,000 refugees already eligible for permanent residence. And obviously, after five years, uh, they're going to get uh, citizenship. So that basically turns the demographics in, you know, in South Africa. You could find basically the local population outnumbered by the foreign population. With And as you know, citizenship uh, brings with it the right to vote. So you could vote uh, certain parties out of power, you know, if there's sufficient numbers. Mm. So you can see... That is also of great concern to the minister. Now, the asylum seekers, seekers uh, 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 permit system will be overhauled completely. I've already mentioned that they're talking about uh, housing them at uh, special places, whether it's going to be permanent or tented cities at Musina, at certain ports of entry, etc. So they won't basically allow them into the country um, and but they'll have uh, the processing centers <coughs> at the borders uh, you can imagine what will happen to places like Musina uh, detention centers in the mm. long in the remote parts of the country will also you know could result I mean it's not untoward they in Britain they already want to send the asylum seekers to Rwanda and Uganda. <laughs> I mean, they don't want them, they're, they're shipping them out. So whether that's contrary to our constitution and international law, uh, where they're going to encamp uh, migrants is, is, is to be seen and whether it's going to be um, replaced, whether the Refugees Act is going to be replaced or one one doesn't know but definitely if they raised it at the national conference it could be pretty interesting you know there's a problem that homofest uh, perceives that most asylum seekers are not really fleeing a harm or personal persecution uh, either through internal or external stresses in their country but are economic migrants, you know. And um, again, you know, you can look at uh, South Africa and then decide uh, why are migrants so successful here because of obviously of the economic opportunities. Um, I think the other problem is going to be is the funding for the asylum processing centers. Eh? Mm. Um, you know, it's an expensive venture. This is, you know, they are, they've made studies into other camps, uh, especially in the U.S., you know, where they have the Mexican problem. It's $224 per day per person. I mean, it's a huge amount, Shafat. It's not, you know, then there's a part from running cost. Then there's going to be the actual cost of feeding, 
Um, I mean, it's going to be like a little, you know, how do you feed the prisoner? How do you house the prisoner? Uh, I'm making that comparison because it's an expensive, uh, it's an expensive exercise. So at the moment, the government doesn't take any responsibility for the food, medical needs and shelter of the um, asylum seekers and refugees. They basically take care of themselves. So you can see from there that I don't know if this is completely well thought out or not. And um, I think, you know, South Africans obviously um, need highly skilled migrants, right? I mean, that's true. But I read that, you know, it was more the pull factor will be from Africa, where they believe that uh, they should strengthen the African workforce. Now, you know, there are critical skills already. There's a shortage. So how are we going to get this from the neighboring countries or, or primarily from Africa? And when they say Africa, does it mean all of Africa or just sub-Saharan Africa? Uh, going to be very interesting to see whether that uh, comes about or not. Importantly, I think they failed to mention the rights of refugee children. Um, you know, many South Af many uh, migrant children face severe trouble accessing documentation in South Africa. For example, Jafar, there was a constitutional court case some time ago, very, very important. It said that if you're born in this country and you've lived here all your life, and your name appears in the pop in the citizenship and population registries um, system, then you are deemed to be a citizen by birth. Home affairs are still not even printed the forms that you can fill out to access that kind of thing. So you can see there's increasing difficulties in accessing birth certificates, in accessing all kinds of things. So. I think we're going to be looking at children specifically as a vulnerable group. I mean, it's in in the normal in the normal uh, rights of children. They can't be held in the same prison with adults. So how are you going to then remove the children if you're going to be housing migrants along the borders? Very, I, I think there's lots of challenges there. Um, so I, th I think one has to look at this thing in depth, but definitely you can see that there is a desire um, to to basically have uh, immigration reform seen to. I can't imagine now since 2017 that they'll produce a completely different paper uh, because there's a lot of time and energy and work that went into it. Um, and it's five years in the making. I'm sure they've been looking at options. Uh, and I mean, I can't, you can't imagine that there will be, um, you know, a big difference from what we're seeing here. But the, the paper was quite thorough because they looked at the background, they looked at the international migration patterns, um, the, the pull and push factors, the strategic interventions, very, very important how admissions and departures take place. Now, I mean, the first criticism will be, 
But hang on, we've got porous borders. Well, now, you know, they've already uh, deployed this border management authority, which basically is, uh, I think, 200 strong, fully funded, and they, their job is to make sure that the borders are not uh, penetrated by people. So I think, I don't know if I've basically done any justice here, or, you know, imparted any kind of uh, real knowledge, but, but certainly that's my understanding of the reform. Yeah, Shrafa, really, uh, you, you brought in a, a lot of uh, points in there, which uh, made a lot of sense. And, uh, well, it seems as if uh, the government, uh, to a certain extent, doesn't know what it's doing. And, you know, you made my mind uh, raise back to author Jacques Pau. You know, he, he warned that the country uh, could turn into a criminal state if it's not uh, already is one, uh, if the current government was not voted out in the uh, 2024 general elections. I mean, with the Sunil Ramaphosa still dreaming and still at the hem. I mean, you notice how the uh, West reacted to his uh, re-election uh, and uh, suddenly the the uh, RAND strengthened once again. Uh, I mean, uh, talk to me about the scenario before we end off, uh, Ashraf. I mean, you know, everything's going pear-shaped, but uh, it seems as if the West is uh, the, the, the blue-eyed boy and the man that they want to run this uh, ship called South Africa is Sir Ramaphosa. What's your thoughts on that, Ashraf? Well, I think to be fair, you know, it was an ANC elective conference. And uh, the entire ANC regions came together and the regions put their nominations forward and the nominees put their nominations forward. And then the top seven uh, were basically nominees. So I don't know if um, uh, if that had an, a, an economic impact, but certainly I, I can tell you that uh, most investors look for stability, especially political stability. Now, a lot of people are saying there's going to be massive cabinet changes. There's going to be an emphasis on uh, on anti-corruption drives, uh, et cetera, et cetera. We'll have to wait and see. The fact of the matter is the president has a legal challenge already in the Constitutional Court. Apart from that, the ruling party decided to reinvest their trust in him. So I don't think they believe that he has done anything wrong. Just simply put, somebody said, you see, Cyril was hiding his own money that got stolen and they couldn't see the crime. Obviously, that's on a very basic level. Yet other people had stolen public money and had gotten away with it, you know, that haven't seen prison yet. So why, you know, why, why are they going after him? Those are philosophical questions because you could say, you know, we are all equal before the law. Anyway, be that as it may, I don't think uh, it's a bad thing that he's re-elected. I think um, if anything, he may or may not have uh, learned his lesson. But the fact of the matter is, Shabbat, he wasn't there when it happened. Eh? This happened in his absence. So how much can we attribute to him personally? You know, in, in law, you have to, he who alleges must prove, must actually prove that he had the intention to break the law, that he knew about this himself. Because he says, I didn't know about this. Ask uh, General Wally Roode, Roode, 
So I don't know if, if that's a satisfactory response, but the man was not in the country. So I think the, you have to give him the benefit of the doubt. Well, CR, are you listening to uh, senior attorney Ashraf Isop? Listen to him. Yeah. I'll talk to you later after the show about uh, CR and, you know, maybe we'll make a plan. Ashraf, your parting words uh, this evening. Shabbat, it's uh, holidays now, so, you know, people are relaxed. Uh, I was just reflecting on something that I think we must take up with great concern next year, uh, 2023. You know, the concept of Wakaf, Shabbat, we, we must understand how the Wakaf worked in the Muslim world. I mean, it basically was the backbone of society's function. And I also think there's two concerns that we must raise, is the food security for the future. And I would urge people to start growing their own um, produce. Start small, but, and then also from a worker point of view, and so Jaria, you know, we must start, we must try and start uh, planting trees. I think it's very important to try and do something for the environment um, and put some of our resources and energies into that. I I, I think uh, we also have to consider water resources and um, how the future is going to be dependent upon that, how we can um, basically take care of a very scarce resource, also find ways of recycling water. But I'm, I'm appealing to us all not just the Muslims, but all of us to be very, very alert to the challenges of the future regarding food security and water and see what we can do to change our ways and um, create uh, community gardens if we can, based on work of. Also, uh, to, you know, for our dear listeners to remember each other in the duas uh, of whatever kind, we are all in need of it. And when they're reading the Yasin, to remember us as well. Zakallah khaira, and definitely I will be remembering you in my recitation of uh, Yasin Sharif. Ashraf, you have a blessed evening ahead. I will talk to you soon. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Time for us to go for the Isha Azan, and inshallah we will continue after that.